So in North America, at least the U.S. and Canada, there are 12 saints that have been canonized. And one of them knew the Eudists very well because she was there in the first implantation of the Eudists in the U.S. Uh, Saint Theodore Guerin was born right in the middle of the French Revolution <laughs> uh, and died in Vincennes, Indiana. Uh, she was a member of the Sisters of Providence and was sent to found a new chapter of them in the U.S. Uh, the way it happened is the bishop in Indiana sent his vicar general to France to look for religious orders to help educate children, to help in the work on the frontiers. Um, so Father Celestin found St. Theodora Guerin and brought her out. He also found the Eudists, who had maybe 10 or 12 Eudists total at that point, because uh, it was right in the midst of the refoundation. Oh, it crashed. That's nice. Oh, it's restarting. That's nice. Anyway. So, 1840, Mother Theodora and the Eudists land in the U.S. I think it was around 1840. And the the stories of Mother Theodora are hilarious and, and really heroic. Because it's like three or four little bitty nuns riding on on caravans out into the middle of nowhere, literally. And uh, they get to the parish and they don't even have a school built. Uh, and it was the same kind of thing for the Eudists as well. Um, then the bishop passed away and Father Celestin, who had been the, the vicar general, became bishop. And then he kind of started to go crazy. Um, paranoia. Uh, he was a control freak. He was certain that all of the religious in his diocese were out to get him. And so he made it illegal to go to confession, for the religious to confess their sins to anyone that wasn't him. Um, It got kind of funky. And uh, Mother Theodora was not a doormat. And I mean, if you're going to volunteer for a mission to go to the frontier and start a convent, you're not going to be. Um, and so she kind of kind of fought back. And so in 1844... Bishop Celestin went to the convent, called a, a meeting of the local community, and demanded the election of a new superior, because he was deposing <laughs> Mother Theodora. So they had elections, and guess who was re-elected? <laughs> um, so then, uh, at that same time, in 1844, he expelled the Eudists from his diocese. Uh, he thought he could control the nuns a little more, but the Eudists, he just told them to get out. Um, 
and he also put Mother Theodora on house arrest in his house, uh, locked her in there, and didn't feed her. Didn't give her any food. It was like putting her in prison until she caved to his wishes. And so she got this close to being martyred by her own bishop. Yeah. Anyway. But then he he was deposed. Uh, I forget how they went through the appeals process, but he was he was removed as bishop and died a couple of years later. Um, but that's how the Eudist crossed paths with one of the North American saints. Um, then we can go straight into the the Eudist history. That's the background. Um, Indiana. In Indiana. Yeah. So that was the first place that Almost. That was the first place we were implanted. Uh, just, yeah, this is it. Okay. The sides are all going to be in French, but we'll translate as much as you want. That kind of gives a background, and then this fills in the rest. There's actually... The Vicar for Women Religious here in San Diego knows the story of, of Mother Theodora really well. I want to say she's from that same order. Okay. Uh, when they founded the order in the U.S., they called it the Sisters of Providence of St. Mary of the Woods, which was the name of their convent, because convents were, were independent of each other at that point. Okay. North American province, including the Philippines. This was a presentation we gave in the special time. We started by showing, you know, the vice province of Africa, they covered this much distance between those two countries, and the province of France, it covers that much distance, and we cover from there to there to there. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, quite a ways. Um, we had a prehistory section, the foundations which we're going to look at, the expansion which we won't, and if you want we can talk about the mutations of society that affected our province, and, and the implications of that for vocations for ministry. When we get there you can decide. Uh, so. In fact, the first Udist in North America landed in 1774 um, trying to escape the revolution before it got real bad. And he actually went to the North Coast where we would later end up having a long history 
Um, but he just kind of he ran away on his own, and and he he ministered there for a while, and he passed away there. Um, it was kind of like the first Judas foot. Um, but this is a picture of St. Gabriel's College, which was founded in 1837 by the Eudists, uh, right? Uh, right now it's not operating as a school anymore, but the Knights of Columbus did a, a restoration of it, I guess, and have this nice little plaque. Yeah. Um... So they were there, they ran the college for a few years, but then by the the mid-40s they were gone. So it only lasted seven, eight years. Uh, mm -hmm. So, Vincennes, Indiana. After that, some of them came down to the English Antilles, actually. Like Trinidad and Tobago, which is there it is, the Antilles. Uh, and there's some interesting history there that I don't know much about. So, what got us to Canada was anti-clericalism in France. Um, Father Ange Le Doré was superior general. This was right after he had started trying to get St. John used to be canonized. And, uh, he knew that we were going to get kicked out. Anti-clericalism was, was fomenting for a couple decades before. So he sent Father Gustave Blanche on, a, on a, a scouting mission to see if all 100 of us get kicked out of the U.S., or out of France. Where could we go? Um, so Father Gustave Blanche traveled through the U.S. and Canada, and he met the Archbishop of Halifax, who had wanted to, to found a college with the Acadian people. Um, they were kind of like the poor fishermen, and he wanted the Archbishop wanted to educate them. Um, so that was one foundation. Uh, a school at Bay St. Marie which is right there. Another one was the same archbishop wanted a seminary. Um, and actually, I think, yeah, this one turned into a bilingual seminary. So this is where some of our first English took place. Um, also in Nova Scotia. Um, and they talk about the difficulty of having a bilingual community. Kind of interesting. And then this was a, a big parish that wanted to found a school for children up in New Brunswick, which is where Father John is from. So Sacred Heart and Caraquet. Okay. So in 1903, 50 Udists left France because it was now illegal to be a Udist or to be religious in general. And I love how whenever they count, they count seminarians as part of the Udists. Um, 
those are domestic brothers the so incorporated Udists who are not priests um, whole nother history there that I want to learn a lot about that I haven't yet so three seminarians two brothers and four priests went to the seminary in Halifax six priests and three brothers went to the university and they kind of scattered all over a couple went to South Dakota um, and ten priests went here <laughs> to the icy north um, the north coast of the St. Lawrence Gulf was a long chain of villages scattered across 800 kilometers which is a lot I don't know how many miles that is a lot <laughs> um of coasts that were fragmented by rivers. It was on the outskirts of the immense Labrador Lake. Um, giant boulders, lakes, forests <laughs> that re reached as far as the Arctic Circle. Um, so it was a huge abandoned kind of territory. And in this 800 kilometers, there were no more than 10,000 people. So, it's like a neighborhood's worth of people. And there had been uh, a bishop who was in charge of this area who was being exhausted by the task. And he said, I would rather cut my diocese in half live more poorly and not expose my best priests to the conditions out in the Labrador because what they're going to do is actually deform themselves way out there on the frontier so this is the craziest quote he says I think it's prudent for me to profit from the religious crisis in France to give myself give my diocese a little bit of rest and to get this elephant off my back <laughs> so he split his diocese in half and he ordained Father Blanche Gustave Blanche bishop of that northern part of the diocese and it happened like like that. Um, in 1903, the bishop asked permission from Rome in February. In July, like f four, four or five months later, he got permission. In August, the Udists arrived. Um, and then two years later, he ordained Father Blanche bishop in his cathedral. And Father Monsignor Blanche now opened his Episcopal seat at Septil, that's the Seven Islands. We'll look at that on the map. And in six years, he opened five new missionary posts. So because it was so far out there, these people were way underserved. And you could 
see from the attitude of the previous bishop, he wasn't too excited about it, right? Right. But with ten priests, <laughs> Father Blanche, uh, <laughs> he he went at it with some energy. From 1904, the loggers became one of the the main apostates of the Eudists. Uh, during the winter, when the snows came, a missionary would have to go up to the loggers, um, which was more than 60 miles away in the forest. But he would have to go... Uh, on a like a horse-drawn sleigh for a while, and then he would have to switch to a dog sled. Uh, so a priest could go, could travel in this way as far as 500 kilometers over the course of one winter. So that's 60 times five. That's 300 miles a winter and celebrate around 50 masses in the different logging camps. So it was kind of crazy. So there's a logger. And this is like old school, the stuff you see in, in cartoons where they cut down the trees and put them in the river and ride on them as they float down the river. So, Father Garnier, who wrote Dog Sled to Airplane, talked about the difficulties, and it's just really touching. He says, there are two of, two of us here, thanks be to God. We do our prayers together. We live in the greatest uh, intimacy. And that's our strength and our consolation. But there are days of solitude, days of absence, because the missions are 50 miles away in one direction and 75 miles in the other direction. And when a missionary leaves, he never knows when he's going to come back. On top of that, the trails are painful. Uh, the vehicles we have are really simple and kind of kind of low quality, cheap, and the dogs are not always obedient, <laughs> right? <laughs> so these two two priests living in the middle of nowhere, riding the dog sleds fifty miles, seventy five. Father Conan drowned, he says. Father Joseph, his companion. Uh, suffered the same fate. So it was it was pretty common that they would go out on the dog sleds across the ice and the ice would break. Or they would get into a canoe with a guide and something would go wrong and the canoe would tip and they'd be in the icy water and drown. Um, there's a lot of stories in Dog Sled Airplane about that. And with all of that, on top of it all, we live in the greatest poverty. Because they had, I mean, when you have 20, 25 people that go to Mass in in your parish, 
you don't get a lot of of, of stipend. <laughs> so they had to grow their own vegetables. They had to hunt and fish themselves. Um, there's a picture of, of a dog sled. And it's really simple. Um, the book is really nice. It has a lot of photos in it. I don't think this is a photo of the Udists, but it's an illustration of the dog sled. Oh yeah, we had uh, <laughs> we had Africans who had never worn socks in their lives, <laughs> you know. So that's why we put in all the illustrations. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So from 1903 when we arrived, uh, from 1904 when Monsignor Labri, no, Monsignor Blanche was ordained, there was a Udist bishop in the North Coast Diocese until 1956. Uh, then we kind of withdrew. Uh, one of the bishops that became real well known was Monsignor Labri. Um, because he was interested not just in the spiritual good of the people, but all the projects of development that he could. So he built a harbor to make shipping cod from up there down to New York easier. He, uh, he would go in, into the capital in Quebec and petition the government until they gave the money to pay for the harbor to be built. So that was his job as bishop, was to to raise capital to to. Yep. So he had projects for bringing electricity to the villages, to improve the fishing industry, the economy, and more than anything else, education. Uh, so, so he was really instrumental. And fascinating is that in 1948, he wrote an apostolic letter to his his diocese on the forestry industry. So if we're going, if this is how we make our living, here's how we need to treat the forest. We need to make sure it's sustainable. We need to make sure everyone has has good wages. It was it was a, about how to be good loggers. <laughs> from even an economic standpoint. And uh, this also is the only cathedral in the whole world named after St. John Eudes oh, yeah. in the North Coast. Uh, yeah, it's the Cathedral of St. John Eudes. It'd be nice to visit there one day. So that's that's what I have on the North Coast. Um, it says his pastoral letter on the forest um, became really well known across Canada and even overseas. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of a taste of the of the Udis out there. The Doug said airplane has a lot of details in it and a lot of.
pictures. Yeah. Cool. So Bishop Blanche, Bishop Lebris, there was also Bishop Lacroix, I think, who became real well known. Um The next part talks about expansion throughout Canada. We did a lot of education, a lot of vocation work in minor seminaries and major seminaries, and a lot of parish ministry and preaching. Um, but on the PowerPoint, it's just a list of all the places that we expanded to. Do you wanna any thoughts at this point? The the part about the quiet revolution is is actually pretty interesting. Oh no. There. Okay. Yeah. So the silent revolution was a very calm, completely unviolent revolution of the people against the ruling powers which happened to be the church in Canada more than anything in French Canada which happens to be where the Udists were um, at the beginning of the 1960s the church was in charge of all of the schools the entire school system from <laughs> preschool all the way through universities. Um, everything was run by the church. Um, the entire public health system was also run by the church. Hospitals, doctors, clinics. Um, if you wanted to be a nurse, pretty much that meant you had to become a nun. If you wanted to be a teacher, you had to become some type of religious. Uh, if you wanted to be an administrator in the hospital, you definitely had to be a nun. Um, and there was something else that the church took care of as well, like the social programs, feeding the poor and, and, and that type of program, the church, I think, was in charge of as well. By the end of the 60s, the government had taken charge of all of it. Which, I mean, to a certain point, that's what we're used to. We're used to the government running public schools and... Uh-huh. Right. So, uh, a journalist gave it this name, the, the Silent Revolution, because it was an absolute revolution. Changed everything. Um, even though it was calm, there was never a, f a shot fired or, or any of that. Um... There was the Liberal Party, directed by Jean Lesage, who 
really pushed for a radical secularization because before they were radically I'm not sure what the word the opposite of secularization would be but um, that could be it parochial yeah um, the the thing is it became pretty extreme and it rendered the Catholic Church virtually inert or static um, and they really they they absolutely rejected any type of of previous values that had been held before including the three dominant values of French Canada agriculturalism messianism maybe that's the opposite of, of secularization um, and the anti-state sentiments so people didn't want the government to have too much control before well they they turned that on its head <laughs> um, so the the government became laicized when before it was almost clericalized um, they lost a lot of the traditionalism the father one of the Canadian fathers that came in a special time said it was like 98 percent of the population went to daily ma to Sunday mass every single week um, because if you didn't everyone in the village would talk about how how terrible of a person you were for missing mass and then it dropped to something like 30 or 40 percent at the end of the 60s and and Father Hebert said well some people think that's a terrible thing in some ways it is but a lot of what happened is the fakers stopped going the ones that didn't care why they were there or what was happening um, The system of education in Quebec was under the direction of the Catholic clergy, so when the all of the schools were secularized, that meant the government took a lot of the properties. That also meant a lot of the people with a vocation to be a teacher left the religious orders. Um, and and that hit the Eudists as well. Um, the first effect was a loss of vocations. In 1961, the seminary in Point Gatineau had 29 new guys. Five years later, it only had 39 total. And f three years after that, in 69, there was no more than 15 seminarians on the whole campus and so they had to close uh, and in 1968 the Udist novitiate shut down just because they didn't have people in it um, so we were hitting a crisis and uh, we couldn't form our seminarians in the major seminary anymore because major seminaries were closing all the time. So in 1972 the authorities came up with this new idea they would 
have a formation team that would be instead of the staff of a seminary it was a collection of dias of priests Judas priests with different missions they got together to accompany the students and that's actually what sounds familiar right <laughs> um, in their development that was spiritual human and intellectual um, and their progressive insertion into a Judas community so the model that we have now started in 1972 when the seminary system collapsed in Canada um, and it was actually impossible to retain all of the institutions that we had so we had this huge list of schools that belonged to us and seminaries that belonged to us and we had a lot of buildings a lot of property uh, and a lot of institutions that employed a bunch of people which became obsolete within the course of a decade <laughs> um, so we had to sell uh, the St. John Eudes College to someone to a, a lay corporation a lot of our stuff was sold or given to the government um, and it makes a list of them but we don't know much about those so we won't talk too much about it um, a lot of priests kind of took this in hand and said okay well if we're gonna have to teach in other schools instead of in our own schools that we own we'll just have to play the game and and go through the same process that all the other teachers have to do so they went to get more education and and entered into the the industry of education um, but in the 60s and 70s there was also this mutation of society and it was the sexual revolution um, which also had a huge effect especially in Canada when all of this rejection of of ancient values was happening they seem to have embraced the the sexual revolution pretty heartily um, so if the 20 years between 1940 and 1960 were a huge boom for the Udists in Canada it was a time of growth and prosperity of s strength the 10 years after that from 60s to the 70s was uh, the bubble popped right um, that was also when the Second Vatican Council was happening so everything was changing in the church as well um, <laughs> a lot of what we did when we made this presentation is we just copied out of the the history book and uh, read it out loud because our French was not that good <laughs> so there's some fluff on the slides so you can see that in the numbers 246 in 1960 we had a huge boom the 20 years before that that decade we went up to 258 and then back down to 249 um, we went from more than half 
working in schools to 87 working in schools. We got a lot more parishes. We lost almost half of our seminaries or seminaries where we worked. And diverse tasks went from 0 to 80. Uh, so before we were a teaching order that had some parishes. After this, no one knows what we are. There are as many people in diverse tasks as there are teaching anymore. Uh, 23 people died in the first five years and seven left. A lot of people left religious life after Vatican II because they were expecting things to change even more radically. Um, another 11 left. So 18 Eudists left religious life within this decade. So it was, it was a huge shock. And in a lot of ways, we haven't recovered at all. There we go. No, still waiting. That's on the next slide, actually. Yeah. Okay. This this just blows me away. <laughs> the the history book Father Venard said, the numbers are alas quite eloquent. Um. So between, in this terrible decade between 60 and 70, we still incorporated 26 new students, new Eudists. From 70 to 80, we only incorporated four. Uh -huh. 80 to 90, we incorporated three. Father Ron Bagley, Father Bill Rowland, and Brother Philippe Gagné. And then from 1990, Father John was at the end of the 60s, I think. Yeah. yeah. And Father Gerard would have been here too, I think. No, he was in, incorporated in Canada, actually. Uh -huh. He was sent overseas on mission as a seminarian, which was kind of... And then between 1990 and 2000, that was Father Bob. Right? So in 30 years after the revolution, we ordained less than a third of the number we ordained. I mean, not even ordination, because Philippe Gagné was incorporated. He wasn't ordained. Right. Well, I mean, that's when you start to see Ernesto. Yeah, we have, we have candidates. Yeah. Maybe not. Yeah, you're right, 2011. Yeah, nobody. Yeah. Shoot. So, I mean, and, and when you think about just the, the radicality of the silent revolution and the... Uh, the intense secularization 
deliberate secularization. You can kind of see why that happened. Um, another thing that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, in 1975, 30 Yudists worked in parishes. 30% of Yudists worked in parishes. 30% were in education. And 40% had diverse tasks. Right? So we went from being almost entirely teaching order to more diverse tasks than anything else. Um, another thing that happened was in 1969 the Yudis General Council met and Vatican II had asked all of the orders to look at their constitutions and revise them and to go back to the original charism and to rewrite the constitutions essentially which we did and we got a chance to meet the men that that were part of this general assembly and they rewrote the constitutions and brought it back to the to the uh, original spirit because I guess there was a lot that had happened in the beginning of the 1900s that kind of drifted away and when we talked to the oratorians in Paris they said they did this too but the priests that were in charge of rewriting the constitutions had no respect for the founder and so it was just like a slash and burn and they cut out basically anything that had meaning uh, so the oratorians we were talking to said they really need to rewrite their constitutions They are, but they have less than 40 priests in the whole order though so it's been tough but we were really blessed to have this general assembly really serious and really steeped in the spirituality so we ended up with some amazing constitutions um, one of the things that was interesting though is they really pushed a decentralization and a lot of collegiality so instead of the superior general having absolute power, they said, well, the the basic cell of the congregation is at the local level. So they really did a lot to push the decision-making down the chain of command, which kind of has a, had an odd effect. I don't know. Something that we're still trying to figure out, I think, was what that did. It said one of the the things that they voted in at the provincial assembly two years after that for North America was in order to assure the efficacy and consolidation of our collective efforts the assembly recommends that provincial planning of apostolic works begin have their point of depart um, the recommendations of the local communities and the individual aspirations. So the religious model before that was 
if the provincial wanted to open a new seminary, he would choose whoever he wanted to and said, okay, you're going to go learn how to be a seminary professor. And a lot of times that person had no interest in it. Sometimes there would be. But this flipped that and said, first thing you do is you ask the person, what is it that they want to do with their lives? Then you ask the local community, what are the needs where you're at? And then the provincial, pretty much his priority is to fulfill those expectations on the lowest level. Which is really nice in terms of individual freedom. But in terms of efficiency, of planning and creating a common vision. Uh-huh. So you ask us, what's the vision of the province? What are the. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that was a deliberate decision in the 1971 Provincial Assembly. Um, and we're still trying to work out how that how that translates to action. I think that's about it. Uh-huh. This I mean this gives you a picture of how we ended up where we're at. The superior generals kind of disappointed with how many parishes we have. Because he says, you just aren't parish priests. In the mid-70s, out of 170 students in the province, 170 Yudists in the province, 137 were active, 51 worked in parish ministry, 34 in, in education, 15 in diocesan service or priestly formation and 13 were different chaplains so we moved into parishes in a pretty big way (laughs) and you can count 68 individual uh, assignments where it's a contract between the individual and the employer the Udist and the employer, and only 25 contracts between the province and the employer. Right, so that's that's another evidence of the flip before the province would commit to it and then give the people. Here, a lot of people had their own jobs, doing charismatic ministry, doing cursillo, working with artists, doing marriage encounter. So, <laughs> and then in 1979 it changed from the Canadian province to the North American province because in 1980 there were 22 Yudists working in the United States Louisiana more than anything so that's it Now in 2001, we have one bishop who's retired, 70 priests, two lay brothers. That's, I don't think that's true anymore. We had seven candidates and 120 associates. 
that also shows you it was Father Pierre Juan that really pioneered the associate program starting in the 70s. And there's a map of where we are right now. There's the north coast way up there. That's where the... I think it's... No, maybe it's right here that the cathedral is. Um, and that's where we are in the U.S. And that's where we are in the Philippines. Amen. So...